The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Darcy, and I'm from the editorial team here at the IEI. And I'm Ricky. I also work in the editorial team here at the IEI. Today, we've got the debate Love and Other Drugs, featuring Rupert Sheldrake, parapsychology researcher, Anders Sandberg, fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute, and Ella Whelan, who is a freelance journalist, commentator, and author. And this debate took place at How the Light Gets In Festival 2022, the philosophy festival produced here by the team at the IAI. So, Ricky, tell us more about today's debate. Well, those people that have taken certain drugs, psychedelics, MDMA, they report feelings of love and euphoria. And the question is, are these true feelings of love or are they kind of a chemical hallucination? Obviously, there's lots of studies going on with MDMA to help mental health. And I think there's also couples therapy going on with MDMA at the moment. Interesting, so. interesting. You came up with this debate, did you not? This was what you produced this. This is your idea. This is one oh, of mine. Oh, no yeah. way, okay. And why did, you, why did you come up with it? You wanted to distinguish between whether these are kind of like fake biochemical reactions in the brain. But people say love in general is just a kind of biochemical reaction that's happening in the yeah. brain. So really, what's the difference? I don't believe that, Darcy. What do, you, what do you think it is then? Well, I think consciousness can't be explained by brain chemistry and so... Therefore, neither can, neither can love. Okay, interesting, interesting. Like well, let's get to it then. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. From the Christian tenet, God is love, to the plots of countless novels and films, love is seen as central to our lives. Yet from scientific studies, along with anecdotal accounts, we know that psychoactive substances and MDMA in particular can enhance and even induce intense feelings of love. If love can be hacked by a change in brain chemistry, might our romanticized idea of love itself be the distortion? Should we use drugs to encourage, initiate, and repair relationships, as some therapists advocate, or are such experiences false, damaging, and potentially socially dangerous? Is love a product of brain chemistry, or is it something deeper than a drug could ever replicate? So, on to our speakers. Anders Sandberg is a philosopher and research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. He describes himself as an academic jack-of-all-trades. Ella Whelan is a political commentator and freelance journalist and author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. 
Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist, author, and researcher. Rupert is author of books like The Science Delusion and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Thank you so much to all of our panelists for being here. Um, we're gonna kick off with a three minute pitch. That means you have three minutes to lay out your position on the question of should we use drugs to initiate, encourage, or repair love? Rupert. Oh, I didn't know I was going first. I thought I was going last. Um, <laughs> I was just relaxing and waiting to hear what they said. Do you said. need a minute? <laughs> all right. Um, well, first of all, I don't think love's just romantic love. It's obvious there's many kinds. I'm a biologist. And if you think about the way in which mother animals will protect their young, most of us would think of that as a form of love. I certainly would. And in the human realm, romantic love is obviously one kind. But also parental love uh, is another, and there are many other forms of love in our society, the love between friends and so on. Um, so love isn't just a feeling, uh, it's a kind of bond or connection between people which has effects. Uh, if you love somebody or care for them, look after them when they're sick, care about them, uh, and uh, it's what you do is actually more important than what you feel, of course, the feelings help the action, but we all know that a lot of people can talk about love in a way that sounds impressive, but when it comes to action, um, there are other people who don't talk about it who are actually much more loving. Um, so that's one point. Another point is that the, um, the Christian view of, of love and, and many other religious views of love is that we live ultimately in a universe where the ultimate consciousness that uh, on which all our conscious minds depend is basically loving. Even though terrible things happen in the world, there's something loving about ultimate reality. And this is something many people experience through mystical experiences. Many people have the experience of being in the loving presence of a greater consciousness. And that can indeed be enhanced by drugs. Some psychedelic drugs induce mystical experiences which give people a sense of a much wider and more intense and encompassing form of love than any they've known in the more limited human realm, a kind of ultimate source of love. And that can lead to a sense of connection with nature and with other people that does lead to more loving relationships. In relation to repairing relationships, I do think drugs can have a beneficial effect. When I first took MDMA, it was in the early 1980s in California, when it had just been uh, developed by Sasha Shulgin and was being tried out by small groups of psychotherapists who were convinced it would have this effect of enabling people to respond to people they were in tense relationships with without lessening their fear, enabling a greater honesty in a way that could help repair relationships. It was utterly surprising to me that this became a kind of dance drug and part of rave culture. When it was first uh, used, it was not part of, that simply wasn't on the horizon. It was, it was seen much more in a therapeutic setting. And interestingly, we're now coming back to the use of psychedelics and mind-altering substances like MDMA um, in the context of psychotherapy and repairing damaged relationships within families um, and between people. So I think drugs can enhance this um, by reducing fear, by opening us up to a greater sense of 
conscious presence, a loving presence. Um, but I don't think love's all about altered brain chemistry. I think it's a much more fundamental feature of the universe and of animal behavior. Thank you so much. Anders, over to you. Should we use drugs to initiate, encourage, or repair love? So I wrote an ethics paper uh, about this, one of the early ethics papers. And then you find that uh, as an academic, you just struck gold because everybody wants to debate it. So it became a whole sequence of papers. And when I started thinking about it, I noticed that it seems that we have three kinds of love-related systems in the brain. One is basically the sex system, mating with somebody that you can mate with. Then you have an attraction system, finding somebody that you're compatible with. And then there is the pair bonding system. And they seem to have slightly different neurochemical substrates. And you could imagine drugs or other means that enhance different, them to different levels. So I think the sex part we can leave aside for the time being, uh, although that's kind of the fun part. But the nice thing about the attraction system is, of course, okay, when you fall in love, you feel something extremely intense, something extremely pleasurable. But it's also problematic if you could make people fall in love. The love potion we have in fairy tales and other stories would be pretty horrifying if it actually existed in the real world. If I'm in love with somebody only because I got a particular drug, that seems to be deeply inauthentic. That seems to be, from a moral standpoint, totally problematic. On the other hand, once you have established that you're compatible with somebody, you start to grow together. It's a learning process. That initial burst of dopamine and other things is telling our forebrains to learn everything we can about each other. We start developing habits, friendships, and the things that is actually sustainable, not just through a few months of a passion, a passionate effort, but instead over years staying together. And that pair bonding system, the interesting part is evolution has obviously optimized us for staying together long enough to rear our kids. But then we might want as humans to stay together much longer than the kids are around because we actually now appreciate that bond. Unfortunately, evolution might not have optimized that that bond stays long enough. Indeed, in our evolution of evolutionary adaptation, we might generally not have expected to survive that long. So this is where we might validly say we might want to help that system. There might be hints here that the, the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin are used as neuromodulators in the brain. This is where we get links to MDMA, which also affects the oxytocin system. And this is where I think we have a pretty clear moral case that, yeah, if we have couples that want to stay together, obviously couples therapy works, but we might want to enhance that as much as possible. So I do think that, yes, there are drugs that definitely can help love and also allow us to have authentic love. There might be other situations when they would be totally inappropriate, but I think there is a good chance. The real problem we have, however, we haven't developed the drugs really well. Right now, we have a few examples of drugs that have been discovered, but nobody has really worked hard on making the best love drugs, the best ones for therapy, the best ones for actually helping authentic love. So we're kind of stumbling around with the molecules we happen to know about. Thank you very much. Ella, over to you. Should we use drugs to initiate, encourage, or repair love? Well, so, I mean, you know, the idea of artificial it's already been touched upon that the idea of artificial love or inducing love artificially is nothing new and you just have to go back you know through literature and culture the ancient greeks had eros with his arrows and you know stories like tristan and Isolde. um 
people shortcutting the barriers that they might face in their way, whether it be geography or social status or someone not fancying you and shortcutting that with some kind of love potion or some kind of God with, you know, favor on your side, doing it for you. But they, you know, across the years and the centuries, they all have one thing in common is that they all end in disaster. They all end in death, tragedy, destruction, um, someone finding out. And, you know, as, as Anders has said, you know, the immorality of forcing um, love on someone through artificial means is quite obvious. Um, but I think the thing I want to sort of investigate across the hour we have is that you know, the reason why this happens is not just because it's immoral to make someone um, love you when they don't or you're not sure about it, but because love is not a simple thing that you can shortcut. You can't hack it. Um, it's neither simple and it's neither an isolated experience. I think probably this is the biggest issue I have with the idea of um, drugs individually being used to induce some kind of feeling of love is that for me, whether it's as um, Rupert's talked about, familial love, friendship love, romantic love, uh, the important thing is that it's not an isolated experience. You, you know, it takes two to tango. You have to have someone else to um, experience that with you and to deepen the understanding of it. The very human nature of the idea of love is that it's a social thing. Um, and I'm incredibly skeptical and disheartened today with the folk, contemporary focus on things like self-care, self-love. And, you know, that's not to say I don't put on a face pack and a crappy movie of myself sometimes and indulge in whatever the hell it is. But this idea that the true meaning of love is to be found within yourself in your individual life and that that sort of should be enough for you. And then maybe if you end up in bed with someone or married to someone, you know, that's just a bonus. Um, and obviously I've got nothing against drugs per se, you know, if the two of you want to go out into the hills and take a few mushrooms and roll around together and tell each other that you love each other, that's fine. And that's, you know, I'm, I hope you have a good time. Um, and, and, you know, lots of people do it. And there's, there's really, I don't see anything wrong with that in general, <clears throat> but I just can't get on board with the idea that that means something substantial. If we're talking about, you know, philosophically or morally or universally, what the idea of love should be or an aspiration of what love should be because i think the key thing is that love is and this is perhaps something that no one has said yet is that love is not one dimensional the power of love it has to include within it pain and death and destruction you know the reason why that moment when you're first falling in love with someone or you first meet a friend is so sweet is because half of you is always worried that they're not they don't love you back or that it, you might not be enough and that's kind of what drives you forward and that's the thing that keeps you waiting by the phone and obviously when you if you do end up with someone romantically and you are going to be with them for the rest of the your life there's that human biological clock ticking in the back of your head that says one day one of us is gonna die. And that's the tragedy of love, which is that it is always going to end in loss in one way or another. Um, and that's part of what makes it so powerful. You can't have true love in whatever form it takes, you know, between friends and family or lovers without the understanding that it also contains deep and visceral pain. Um, and so I think, you know, any kind of artificial means of trying to explore that through drugs, taking a pill or a potion or something um, to, in order to feel that pleasure is leaving out the important pain bit. And I was sort of, you know, you can, I was looking for a good Shakespeare quote, trying to find something to capture it. You know, the man who wrote so much about love. And I came across this one from, you know, love is a 
smoke and is made with the fume of size no you know no bonus points for understanding that's from romeo and juliet one of the most famous love stories ever written and i picked it because of fume i thought maybe that would be relevant to a discussion about drugs but then you know encapsulating this idea that you know yes love is a drug yes it makes us do it is the pursuit of it is something that is meant to be centrally around pleasure but actually it is also uh, the human thing about it is that it is so complicated. It is so entwined with that other dark side of us, which is jealousy and sometimes terrible things like murder and pain. And that's what makes love this thing that we keep driving after. Otherwise, we'd all sit in our rooms, take drugs and do it to ourselves. And I think that's probably not a good future to look forward to. Thank you. Thank you to our panelists for those opening pitches. I want to pick up where uh, Ella just left us, actually, um, and with you, if I may, uh, Anders, which is, is there something ineffable about love that drugs could never capture? Well, it's a bit like singing. Singing is not about air, but it's very hard to do singing without air. Uh, and you might say paper and ink, they cannot really contain love but that's what you write love poems on. You need uh, then air in order to sing. And similarly, in order to feel love, you need a brain that is sending glutamate and a lot of neurotransmitters back and forth. But that is in some sense a very trivial thing. It's a foundation, but a, a platform that allows other things to go on. Now, if I were to try to describe love only as a long list of chemicals, I would obviously be missing out on everything. It's a little bit like describing Shakespeare as the number of letters he was using in different things. That's not really what it's about. It's a higher order phenomenon. And there is a lot of information going on in love. At the very least, you need to know who you're in love with. Without that, it's kind of a nice feeling. Uh, but I think most people will say you're not in love with somebody. You're maybe experiences of it. We can imagine free floating qualia representing that, this, but normally, we tend to link it to information about who we love, why we love them, what's going on about them, and so on. And that's higher order stuff. And it might be that some of it is exceedingly subtle, and exactly how that is derived from the neurotransmitters, I'm very much of a materialist in my corner here, is a really good question, which uh, is worth investigating. So the ineffable stuff is the higher order of things. It's just like Windows is ineffable on a computer in terms of electricity and silicon, but it still runs on electricity and silicon. And by nudging them, we can affect what the computer is doing. And by nudging the chemicals, we can affect the foundations of that platform on which we built this beautiful thing out of fumes of size. Ella, it sounds like you can enhance love through chemicals. I think, you know, this is the thing. I think you you can. And there's, you know, Anders makes the point that obviously there's a certain amount of our life and our, the makeup of what, you know, our, our very being that is functional. Um, and, you know, in the same way that if you take, for example, I ha would have absolutely no problem with someone who has a problem, like, you know, mental health problem or something, who takes drugs to change their, you know, state of uh, the way they interact with the world. Obviously, that's something that we understand to be a beneficial thing for some people in some circumstances. And I wouldn't go around saying these people are living artificial lives or anything like that. But I think in terms of, you know, what you understand love to be, whether it's a kind of biochemical thing, which, you know, as you already pointed out, in some ways it is in terms of the drive to procreate, though, of course, we've subverted that with 
great things like casual sex and of everything that we understand in the modern world to be part of a free society. But it's if you're thinking about it in terms of um, philosophical or even actually sort of political aspirations, which is what do we understand love to be of value in a society? Why should you, and this is why I really want to emphasize the social aspect of it, you know, why should love be understood as a primarily universal human interacting thing rather than a solo, to be very crude, a solo thing where you might go to your bedroom and take drugs just, or, you know, everyone who's been to a club with loads of people on MDMA knows that it's not particularly social drug. You don't have long and deep conversations, or if you do, you're talking crap. I think we do need to be aspirational about the idea of the social aspect of love, that it is more beneficial for you to get out there and try it and risk it. I think suppose what I'm really talking about is risk, that unless you risk your heart, um, on a new relationship, whatever form that might take, then you haven't really opened yourself up to the fullness of love. And it's, and you know, even though drugs can be dangerous, conversely, it's very, it's, it seems to me a very safe thing to just say, I'm just going to do this on my own with myself and be with my own thoughts, because actually then you're not, you're not risking yourself to anyone else's scrutiny, which is really what love comes down to is another person being involved in your business. Mm, the lack of self assessment or independent assessment of uh, that feeling um <clears throat> rupert so is it the f the the reality then that drugs create uh, the brain chemistry needed for love is that is that there is that what we could be looking to them for well love so it certainly doesn't depend on brain chemicals well i mean brain chemicals involved in every neural process the neurotransmitters but if you look at, say, the love that dogs can have for humans, and as some people say, when you get a dog, it's the only kind of love that money can buy. <laughs> there are better examples of unconditional love than most humans. I mean, only the highest level of saints can achieve the level of unconditional love that many dogs show for their unworthy owners. So, I, I, and certainly they're not, I mean, they may be, or they may be additives in pet food that, <laughs> um, that we don't know about. I mean, it's about, it's about relationship and about something to do with the relationship going beyond pure, immediate, personal self-interest. It's about commitment and relationship to another, another person, another organism. And so I think that, I think that coming back to the transcendent aspect, um, I think the mystical aspect, the transcendent aspect of, of some psychedelics um, is to open people up to this much greater sense of love which can exist in mystical experiences and which often has a healing effect. I mean, for example, uh, mushrooms, psilocybin and other psychedelics are now being used to treat, as many people know, depression and addictions. and. They're working not just because the chemical is affecting chemicals in the brain, they're working because they induce experiences of connection um, that transcend our normal, everyday, mundane lives and give people a sense that they're part of something much greater than themselves and there's a kind of loving presence in the universe um, which can change their lives in a way that makes them more loving people. So there, there are effects of drugs that can be transformative, but most of the time, love um, depends on just regular neurochemicals and uh, a bonding, a connection which takes people beyond their own limited selves, as 
as you were saying, it's, a, it's, it's to do with relationship. So beyond the transcendental love, is there not an argument for saying that taking drugs to enhance love in interpersonal relationships could, you know, it, it, it's not a shortcut really. Shouldn't you be doing the actual things that enhance love in those relationships rather than creating the chemicals that make you feel like you're enhancing? Mm -hmm. That relationship well i think you should definitely be doing the actual enhancing but couples therapy is uh, it's quite effective but maybe you can make it more effective it's a little bit like depression uh, you can uh, cure some forms of depression by giving ssris or giving cognitive behavior therapy it turns out that it's actually quite useful to give some people SSRIs so they can take the therapy. And the therapy then tends to stick much better because you learn coping behaviors. You actually get the ability to then stave off uh, the dark dog of depression. And similarly, when it comes to learning how to deal with the problems of a relationship, sometimes it might be that maybe it's not a love drug you need maybe you need a cognitive enhancer so you're smart enough to understand what being told to you and sometimes it might be something completely different and i would assume that a good uh, person helping them <coughs> a couple get together might have a, a good understanding of what works i don't think it's like yeah one method is the right one and one is the wrong one it's rather which one works best for this uh, kind of thing Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Um, I want to come back to the microdosing, which has become very popular. Um, we're alluding here to Silicon Valley, where it's now become popular even in the, the big tech companies, but I'm sure it's very popular here at Hay on Y as well. Is the microdosing trend, you know, just using what we already have available to enhance, you know, what's there, or is it a trend that you are concerned about? I feel like you might be a little bit concerned about this. Maybe it's that I, you know, I think I have to admit a prejudice, which is that with with the great exception of Rupert, most people I've heard talking about microdosing are full of crap. I mean, you know, that there's something there's something to not to be to not to be too crude. But putting that prejudice aside, I think that the thing that rankles with me is that the idea that you would in, you know, and maybe maybe Rupert and Anders would disagree with me here, the difference between the real world and the enhanced or artificial world, um, it's a bit like, you know, going to, when you go to the cinema or you see a good play or something, you're really crying. There are real people doing things on the screen. It's all real, but it's not real. It's, a, it's you know, you're entering a different uh, imaginative space and I sort of think that in the same way that I would have a problem with people someone who was going and watching the same rom-com every day to try and you know have some kind of catharsis I think I'd have a problem with someone microdosing in that way because I'd sort of want to ask the question I think you alluded to is it what is it that you're sort of 
being lazy about? What is it that you're shortcutting? And I'm sure people do it just, you know, I have really have no problem with people doing it for the crack of it, you know, for the, for the fun of it, because it, if you do it right, it can be very enjoyable. I think we have a tendency more broadly in society to whether it be, you know, seeking therapy for everything, every problem that you have, whether it be, you know, deciding that I need to microdose because it's raining and I'm having a bit of a bad day or I'm not able to really write this essay well, let me just try and enhance my abilities. I think that's actually showing that there's something lacking in yourself and in the you know society um that needs to be solved you need to get back to what are the root causes in the real world and particularly in relationships you know if you're having to take psychedelic drugs in a relationship to help you love each other better i think maybe you should just break up or one of you should admit that you're doing something wrong because usually someone is doing something wrong and you know that might make me sound like a a Luddite, and I don't want to sound like someone who's sort of instinctively anti-drugs, but I just think using them to cure the ills of a relationship or society or your own sense of self is that it's using something to try and cure something that actually you need to just work on yourself. Aren't we doing that every day? Microdosing coffee, alcohol, you know, aren't people just drugging themselves every day to resolve. I mean, isn't isn't this just another example? Well, I mean, you know, the extent, I think the extent to which you can compare LSD and coffee is probably lim limited. I think in the same way that if someone needed to get up in the morning and have a pint just to get through the day, we generally understand that there's an issue there that needs to be looked at rather than it's just someone's lifestyle. And I, I love drinking. I think drinking's great. I don't, I actually, as it happens, think drugs should be legalized. I think there's a problem with them being criminalized. Um, but that's more to do with my views on independence and um, kind of the sovereignty of the self and being able to make your own decisions than it is about me suddenly suggesting, I think we should be stoned all the time. <laughs> oh, I, I'm bringing Anders in, but I do wonder how many couples think of, you know, a good night as a couple involves a couple of drinks and how many people yeah, think yeah. I can have a good night as a couple without a couple of drinks. But Anders. Yeah, yeah I'm somewhat skeptical of microdosing itself. I think a friend of mine said, well, at least it certainly doesn't help with analytic philosophy. And there might to be that well as the old joke goes if you if you give enough alcohol to a continental philosopher you get a poet but if you <laughs> give enough alcohol to an analytic philosopher you get a drunk analytic philosopher <laughs> and it might very well be that yes but what happens here with the, these drugs whether that is LSD or alcohol depends very much on what kind of activity you're doing and I fear that a lot of microdosing is probably just triggering the placebo effect so people believe that they're getting something and that might be quite good. There is a lot of things to be said for the placebo effect. Thomas Mann found a beautiful way of saving the drama of Tristan and Isolde. You might remember that they drink a love potion and fall tragically in love and then it all ends in tragedy. But it's kind of trite that that great love story is because they fell in love because of a love potion. And his, Thomas Mann's argument was actually it was placebo. They, it was actually just water they drank and it made, made them believe that now we drank a love potion and now we're in love, but they were already in love. That was a beautiful way of saving the drama from otherwise being really problematic. So getting back to it, I think you want to know what the drug or other activity you do is supposed to do with you and also have enough experience to know what it actually does. I know that if I drink one glass of wine, I'm going to be much better at a particular computer game I love. 
I'll be getting much wilder and taking much bigger risks. If I drink two, I'm going to get worse. I know roughly how much coffee I can drink. And again, in my relationship with my husband, I know I can have fun without alcohol. It can be nice with a glass of wine and so on. Understanding these things, that also allows us to maybe make the right choices. And sometimes we might need to try things out and get the experience. Sometimes others can advise us. Sometimes we can even get societal norms and understanding where we amass a lot of experience from a lot of people. It's just that we don't have that set of knowledge yet about these drugs. And we might need to try to develop that rather rapidly because we're spreading. Rupert is a co sorry. Did you want to come back on that? Well, on the, on the micro, I haven't said anything on the micro data. Yeah. No. Yet. I, I basically, I can't see the point really. I, I you know, I'm in favour of macro dosing myself. I can't see the point of having a micro dose that just doesn't do very much that's noticeable. I mean, then it becomes like yet another supplement. I'm already taking. At the behest of my older son, Merlin, you know, lion's mane, reishi, all sorts of, I don't notice the difference, but he assures me they're doing me good. <laughs> um, and um, so um, I think microdosing might have uh, something of that similar effect. But um, so I think that the d d taking these psychedelics with a purpose in, a, in conditions where they are likely to be transformative is very important. And personally, I well, I'm interested in a movement some of you may have come across called Cathedrals on Cannabis. Um, I think it's self-explanatory. Uh, yeah. um, no, no, it really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> We're well, going to need a breakdown. It, it, um, well, visiting cathedrals were designed to alter states of consciousness. In the Middle Ages, our ancestors built these amazing buildings, not for functional reasons, not to make money, but for the glory of God, as they understood God. And there are these buildings, huge spaces, stained glass windows, sacred geometry, entirely there to change your consciousness. And if you go to these open to that, and I and others have found that cannabis can help with that, and of course, there are also people who are into cathedrals on mushrooms, cathedrals on acid, uh, yeah, and so on. Um, these uh, can be truly transformative experiences. And I think this is, combines the old and the new in, in, a, in a really powerful way. These buildings were designed, as I say, to change consciousness. And every day they, in our cathedrals, there's a service of choral evensong when choirs sing incredibly beautiful music, usually around 5 p.m. And the whole cathedral is re resonating to sacred chant. This is a truly transcendental and wonderful experience, and it can be more so, it can be enhanced through macro doses or moderate doses of psychedelics and cannabis. And so I'm in favor of these transformative experiences. So would a society or a culture in which uh, people using psychedelics in a very broad way, lots and lots of people were doing it, a better culture? Would it enhance the culture for many people to be using psychedelics? I think, well, the point of my two most recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, is that in each book I deal with seven different spiritual practices, including meditation, singing and chanting, pilgrimage, um, um, 
connecting with nature and spiritual openings through cannabis and psychedelics. And I think that mystical experiences, that sense is that we're part of a much greater whole, that we're part of a much greater reality. Even if materialists may say, well, that's just an illusion. The fact is that these sensations change our lives in a generally positive way. And psychedelics are one of the ways, not the only way by any means. In my own particular books, they're one of 14 ways in which uh, we can open ourselves, put ourselves in a state where we're more likely to have these experiences. For many people, they occur spontaneously. A lot of people have spontaneous mystical experiences that change their lives. For example, through near-death experiences, which come unbidden. Most people don't try to die in order to have a near-death experience. Uh, they happen to people as a result of accidents and heart attacks. But um, they often have a, a sense of unity, a joy, connection with another realm, uh, and they have a life-transforming effect. Um, so I'm all in favor of those, and I think psychedelics have a role to play. But I, my own view is that this is something that only needs to happen occasionally. A daily microdose seems to me not the way to go as compared to, say, a yearly or twice yearly macrodose. But with the macrodose. Mm. Okay. Ella, we'd all be better off if everyone was macrodosing once or twice a year. I think try everything once and then see how you like it. Um, and I, I really don't have that much of a problem with drugs per se. But I think, you know, if I think about how, just to take the cathedral example, uh, not religious, and um, Rupert is right, obviously the art in a kind of modern, particularly Western society, our understanding or appreciation of the original meaning behind um, cathedrals and things like that might have changed drastically. But I can still sit in the middle of it unaided by psychedelics or cannabis and you know you look up and you you know if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel for example if you've lucky, lucky enough to go I sit there and you might wonder at the glory of God or you might wonder at the glory of humanity which is that you just are looking at these things that are testament to what people in years gone by have done and the, just the sheer beauty of it in an abstract sense or if you go out tonight you know, this is what I do whenever I get out of London and lie on the grass and look at the stars and you understand that there's something bigger than yourself, that the world is not just about you. Um, I think that can be an unaided spiritual experience, you know, spiritual in the abstract sense. And I think that's the kind of thing that genuine experiences of love do most importantly they take you out of yourself so you see yourself in another um you know the reason why you know when our when our loved ones die if you've ever had the um miss opportunity of of having a parent die or something you understand you see yourself in someone else and you see your connection to some to something else and that loss makes you realize how important that and strong that love was and so i think I have no problem with people taking drugs in a kind of future society and I think we should be able to take them more easily and I actually think if it was more easy to take them we'd probably find out that you know a lot of the time it's it it can be a waste of time um and I I would like people to be engaged because I'm political I want people to be engaged in forging the world in real terms rather than in abstract spiritual terms but 
but I just think that, you know, a, a quite simply a world in which we're relying on artificial means, whether that's, you know, in a, we were talking before about sex robots before we came on stage or whether it's um, or, or whether it's, uh, you know, people who become obsessed with a digital world, you know, people who become addicted to whether it's online gaming or social media or something. If you're not really it's not to sort of. Uh, to make too much of actually, you know, physically being able to be touching people. But the idea that you would have this, you know, that you would live in an alternate plane and that that would be the way to find fulfillment just seems to me like you're giving up on what's here and now in reality and you're giving up on the truly complex nature of um, of <laughs> human beings in the real world. Uh, I think you have to be able to understand that life is, I think this is a key point, that life is only, the good points of life are only good when you experience the low points and the bad points as well. And that have, relying on some kind of artificial means to either broaden your horizons i mean we used to say read the book you know we used to say go and go and visit another country you know broaden your horizons those ways and if you know I, the idea that someone would do that in this very isolated experience isolating experience of taking drugs because you know if, if the two of us take the same pill we're going to have <laughs> we're not going to be able to meet in the middle and talk in our drugged up state about how great it is you know we're having different experiences i think that we need to just keep ourselves grounded and remember that actually artificial things are artificial and they can never really mimic the real deal. Thank you very much. Um, before we go to the last part, I'm aware that you may have something. You'd... Yeah, but I should probably also be quick. I, I don't think there is any distinction between artificial and natural. I think just like ants make anthills, humans make technology. Uh, and we have, even from a purely materialistic perspective, we have always been living in a kind of virtual reality that we're generating with our brains. Most of us don't see this entire room. We're just uh, moving our fovea around when we're glancing around and the rest is filled in by our brains. That's already virtual reality. Now it's a very reliable virtual reality. It's one that we mostly can trust. And I think the fear we have from be de being dependent on artificial systems is that we know that we can fail quite often or they can fail for reasons we don't have control over. I think we need to understand the robustness or lack of robustness of many of these means. When we have that understanding, I think many of the fears will go away and we can see them for what they are. Thank you. Um, and let's turn to the future now, if we may. Um, will the use of psychedelics to initiate and enhance love and relationships become the norm, Rupert? And if so, what might the impact of that be? Crystal balling. Well, I mean, I think it's already the norm for many people. I mean, if you look at the actual consumption of alcohol, for example, or cannabis, which are very consumed by vast numbers of people. I mean, these are already normal. Um, and in certain circles, I mean, among many kinds of students, for example, psychedelics are normal. And in rave dance scenes and in other club scenes, they're normal. Um, so I think that's already the case. Um, you know, I agree with the need to be grounded in reality. I think leading a life that sort of always artificially, well, drugs have a natural basis, but sort of stimulated by drugs. And in, in, in I think we need long periods of sobriety as well. Um, and I suspect that they, they, these things will be more normal uh, in, this, in the future, especially if they're legalized. Um, right now, in many states in the United States, uh, ca cannabis is legalized. 
um, in some states, um, mushrooms are decriminalized. Uh, so in a sense, they're becoming more normal. I myself, I'm, I myself am in favor of uh, uh, religious uh, institutions. I think they maintain our great traditions, cathedrals, temples, and so on. And I think one of the ways forward is integrating these with religious uh, experiences. The, for example, in Brazil, the Santo Daime Church is a psychedelic church where they take as their communion ayahuasca. And so there's a sense in which this has been already integrated with a tradition and a community in a way that's not just about tripping, it's a way about building community, working together, helping other people. Um, and so the, I think if we're looking at what might happen in the future, we've got models in other countries, particularly Brazil, um, which show how these things could be normalized in, in a way that is actually transformative rather than just business as usual with an added bonus extra. Um, so I think that integration, since religions are about transcendent experience and building community, and the way these two can work together, um, I think that the um, evolution of religion is one of the most important things and that psychedelics could play into that. Um, so I agree that this has a kind of political dimension in the sense that it's about community and activism. Um, it's not just about sort of belief systems and dogmas, um, I personally encounter a great deal more dogma in the realm of science than I do in the realm of religion. Um, so I, I think that it, it can be integrated, but we're not there yet. Um, but still, most of our future is going to depend on much more ordinary things like having an economy that works together with nature rather than against it, uh, ways which we deal with increasing numbers of elderly people, how we deal with limited resources, and so on, mental health issues, much more education, much more mundane issues. Um, but I think this, they have a role to play. Um, Ella, um, why, more widespread use in the future could help community activism. Um, I think that we need to change probably, you know, we've had a very enjoyable, upbeat discussion about drugs and maybe end on a dark note, but obviously there is a problem with opioid crisis, particularly in America, drug addiction in, you know, very concentrated in Scotland, but obviously in lots of other places. Um, a reliance on drugs, particularly sedative kind of drugs to mask social problems, personal problems um, is not a good thing. And, you know, I think that if you, if you talked to uh, someone who was a kind of anti-drug campaigner, they could much better explain the reasons why drugs can be used as a as a destructive crutch for someone who actually needs to address what's going on in their life and you know that includes alcohol obviously alcoholism with drinking is great but alcoholism is not um but i think if we change our and i, I agree i think through the legalization of drugs and a different approach to drugs you could change the view of how we engage with them which is that if you take something like alcohol um yes when you go out alcohol 
can make it more f it can loosen you up it can make you more fun um you know it, it's something that does change your behavior and you can you know lots of people most people use it in that kind of a way um but the thing about alcohol is that it is a social it's very much understood as a social drug um uh, you know it's a social thing that you do it when it's positive you do it together either at the pub or at a party it facilitates conversation it's not necessarily one of these ones that makes you kind of go away into your own world um if unless you do it to excess so i think if we think about drugs in that different way which is we treat them you know i agree with rupert we treat them much more like something that you might occasionally enjoy like a, a your fast food binge or something like that where it's just a, a one-off thing now and again i see no problem with that but i do see a problem Problem, and I think this is perhaps for another session more broadly with a society that is I think this is particularly in relation to uh, kind of Western contemporary culture which is always trying to um, you know trying to avoid the difficulties of, of life whether that be therapy culture or anything else that there's we're trying to seek some kind of artificial state of well you know that word well-being all the time I mean I just think you can't have well-being all the time that's that's not real that's not real life or if you can you must live a wonderfully charmed life and so then you know i think that if we if we can get over that idea that drugs or anything else any other kind of sort of sedating experience or enhancing experience is the means to which we gain happiness or love um and actually start accepting that life might need to have its ups and downs then i see no problem with with doing it, but the idea that we that society would get better because we take drugs, people have been taking drugs for ages, and you know we haven't had a great political change, and certainly lots of the political change that happened in the time when lots of people were taking drugs in you know 60s and 70s, uh, you know there was there were some benefits to it, but there was also a lot of people who came out of that with fried brains and not very much to say for themselves. Anders, I want to bring you in here on uh, is is the future of love uh, a future in which we accept hacked love? Hacked love will be the I, an I enhanced think, future. I think we will certainly try it. So as somebody is kind of doing future studies, uh, we typically I, anybody involved in future studies would stress that s. There's multiple futures. It's not like the future already exists. We actually have a lot of choices, or at least there is a fair bit of randomness. And the nice thing here is we can actually try things out. And it might turn out that, yeah, there are certain forms of psychedelics that are really great for setting up relationships, or maybe not. We need to try it, and then we need to learn from that. It's worth noticing that apparently today in West, the Western world, the majority of new couples come together because of dating apps. This is a technological enhancement in some sense of dating. It's also a sociological transformation that has profound and complicated effect because previously people got together because of religious communities or social expectations or meeting at work. We're transforming love all the time and we're trying out things and some of them are not so good. I think there are love drugs that might help repair things that are very useful. I think the psychedelics might be giving us surprising insights, but maybe we're not constantly using What I really think we need to do is figure out better ways of learning about the local activities, the local experiences. And this is why we need an open society where it's actually possible to experiment with your life project and then report on that and others can take it up and say, this looks promising. Let's improve on it a bit more. Is hacked love true love? Could you ever be, if, if you knew your partner was, you know, taking some sort of supplement, psychedelics or other, 
could you ever trust that that was a real emotion? Is it just an enhancer or could it actually I, I think we overestimate the importance of authenticity. We're kind of obsessed with it in the Western world that everything has to be truly authentic, but nothing is that perfectly authentic. This is a bit like Disney's concept of love that little birds are supposed to be singing and every, it's everybody. It's not like that? that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, not always. You, you might be an exception. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.